Romans chapter 1. We are conducting a consecutive exposition of the book of Romans. And this morning we come to the last verse in chapter 1. So as a scripture reading, I'm going to put in perspective reading selected portions from verse 18 onward. The Apostle Paul, starting in 118, begins to explain why fallen humanity needs Christ. And he says it's because of the wrath of God upon human sin. And he begins with the wrath of God that's presently here in this generation. And he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And then he goes on to describe how they suppress the truth in an unrighteous way. They reject the light of nature that they see. They know that God exists, but they suppress it and they reject it. And he describes that in verses 18 to 23. Then he says how God's wrath is presently being displayed in a society that has suppressed the knowledge of God the Creator and refused to acknowledge Him. And he uses a phrase that he repeats three times. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. God abandoned them. He handed them over. Now what did God do to them to give them up? Absolutely nothing. He simply withdraws the restraining influences of his common grace and he lets them do what it's in their hearts to do. What did he give them up to? Three things. Degradation, deviation, and moral degeneration. First of all, degradation, verse 24, wherefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to uncleanness. So he's talking about sexual degradation. They degrade their bodies by sexual activity outside of marriage. And then verse 26, for this cause God gave them up. There's that phrase again. This time he says vile passions. This is sexual deviation. That is, they deviate from the created norm of the male with the female. And then lastly, in verse 28, he says it again. And even as they refused to have God in their knowledge, God gave them up to what he calls a reprobate mind, moral degeneration, to do the things that are not right. A morally degenerate way of thinking, mindset, and lifestyle behavior. And then, in the original, it's pretty clear. He, he features four aspects of a degenerate mindset and lifestyle. Degenerate mindset and lifestyle with regard to greed. A degenerate lifestyle and mindset with regard to human life. A degenerate mindset and lifestyle with regard to truth. And a degenerate mindset and lifestyle with regard to personal relationships. 
And he says that, the last thing, he features that in verse 31. Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, unmerciful. Now, all that is the background of the text that I want to address today. Verse 32. Now, in verse 32, he identifies how godless society responds to this divine abandonment. How do they react? Who, knowing the judgment or verdict of God, that they who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but also consent with those that practice them. So let's ask the Lord's blessing on the ministry of his word. Father, as we consider this response of a godless society to divine abandonment, have mercy. Let your holy word come in power. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Who, although they know God's verdict, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do them, but also approve those who practice them. And what we have here is an inspired insight into the human heart. We have a description of an unconscionable response, a godless reaction to God giving them up, a godless reaction to a God-forsaken society. How do the godless respond? Their response is what I call unconscionable. He uncovers what they do and what they approve and what they know. So I refer to what they do as their conduct, what they approve and condone as their consent, and what they know, I call that their conscience. Their conduct, their consent, and their conscience. So what do they do? It says, who not only do them. What things did they do? They do the things that characterize a society that's God-forsaken. God gave them up. They do sexual degradation. They're sexually active and unmarried. They do sexually deviant things from the created norm and the design of the procreated faculties. And they do things characteristic of moral degeneration. Greed, 
moral degeneration with regard to human life, hate and violence, with regard to truth, what he calls arrogance and dishonesty, and with regard to personal relations, they're self-absorbed and they're living for their own personal pleasure and ease. They do them. These things mark their lives. These things characterize how they think inwardly and how they behave outwardly. Now, they're not necessarily, every one of them is not necessarily doing all of these things, or they're not necessarily doing all of these things or any of these things to the same degree as others. There are some in that God-forsaken society, God gave them up, that are not married, but they're sexually active. Others that are deviating from uh, God's created norm sexually. Others that are greedily spending way beyond their means. Some are cheating their customers and others are grossly underpaying their employees and some are shoplifting and some are spreading lies about people they hate and some are committing violent crimes and uh, some are railing against God in their classrooms and some are leaving a trail of broken relationships with people they betrayed or jilted or abandoned. So they're not all doing all those things, and they're not all doing any of those things to the same degree, but that's what they're doing. They're doing the thing characteristic of a God-forsaken, God-gave-them-up society. Does that make sense? God gave them up. And so look with me in the second place at their consent, their conduct, their consent, what they approve of and condone. He says, they not only do them these things that are the evidences of God's wrath, divine abandonment, they not only do them, but they also, quote, approve those who do them. They consent. They they approve and condone it. Now the word that he used can mean to consent or to approve or to have pleasure in. He describes himself with this word before he was converted. We, we read in Acts 8.1, and Saul was consenting, there's the word, to his death. That is the death of Stephen. And when he's giving his testimony, he says this. In giving his testimony, he's telling about an encounter he had with Christ and how he was talking to Christ. And in Acts 22:20, 20, he says, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was shed, I also was standing by and consenting and keeping the garments of those that killed him. You see, he was a person who believed in religious violence. And he was consenting to it. And then it's also used, he uses it again in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 and 13, when he talks about unmarried, uh, or he talks about married unsaved spouses being willing to dwell with a believer or a believer with an unsaved one. He says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, 
If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she, here's the word, is content or she consents or she agrees, King James translates it, is pleased. She consents, she agrees to dwell with him. She consents to it. She agrees to it. She approves living there. Even though he's unconverted, she is in agreement with living with him. She goes along with him. And he uses it again in the next verse. So that's the idea. Now, let me try to give you... Now, I'm not going to try to answer these things. I'm just going to tell you things that I have heard people say in expressing this where they approve of, they condone, they consent to the type of things described in verses 24 to 31. God gave them up to degradation, deviation, degeneration. God gave them up. All that. I've heard people Consent to it. I'm not going to argue. I'm just going to tell you what I've heard. Maybe you heard some of this stuff too. You say, what would you hear? I've heard people say things like this. Whatever people do in private is okay as long as nobody else gets hurt. What happens between two consenting adults in private is nobody else's business. It's better to have experience to live together in a trial period before a long-term commitment like marriage. And anyone who says it's immoral for unmarried people to be sexually active is judgmental and bigoted. Say, you actually heard people say stuff like that? Mm Mm-hmm, I did. I heard people condone the very things that Paul says in verse 24 and following are evidence of God's abandonment. What else you hear? I heard this. Same-sex lifestyle does not involve any moral choice. Some people are just born with a different sexual orientation. And anyone who says that same-sex behavior is immoral is guilty of hate speech and irrational fear. Phobia. Sometimes, period, exclamation point. Do you ever hear anything like that? Heard that too. So what else you hear? Well, I heard about people justifying leaving a trail of broken relationships and marriages without any biblical grounds. And the Bible gives biblical grounds for divorce. I'm not saying there's absolutely none. If a spouse commits adultery or irreconcilable desertion, there are biblical grounds. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the stuff that I've heard. Stuff like this. You know, when you say, as long as we both shall live, that's unrealistic, unreasonable, and impractical. What I'm committed to, as long as we both shall love, that's a lot better and realistic for everybody. And furthermore, every person has the right to be happy. And neither of us could ever be happy in this marriage. And we don't want to live a lie 
We don't love each other anymore. And it would be hypocrisy to stay together just for the kids. So you're making it up. You know, I wish I was. I wish I was making it up. I wish people didn't actually say and think stuff like that to condone the practice of divorce on demand. Right? You think I'm making this stuff up? No. You're right, I'm not. You know what else they condone? Disregard for human life. Wanton disregard for human life. How do they condone that? When they condone abortion on demand. What do they say? You know, every woman has the right to choose to do what she wants with her own body. Terminating a pregnancy is a medical decision that should be made only between a woman and her doctor. Abortion is simply terminating a pregnancy, removing a fetus, and a fetus isn't a human baby. Every child should be a wanted child. You know, I personally don't favor having an abortion myself, but I support a woman's right to choose. You're making that up. I'm making it up. You ever hear anything like that? No? How about this? You might not have heard this. Sometimes they, they also condone. Although I'm not sure how openly they're all saying this. But they do say it. They condone dishonesty and violence. Well, how do they do that? Well, they say things like, you know, sometimes it's necessary to spread false information about people to achieve social justice. And the ends, social justice, justify the means. Stealing, destruction of property, and physical violence. The ends justify the means, and sometimes it's necessary to spread lies about people in order to achieve justice. Do you actually hear people say that? Well, I did. But I'm not so sure that there is open about that. And mostly, that kind of stuff comes out of the mouths of Marxists. They believe it's OK to lie and spread misinformation in order to justify the means, that, uh, to justify the ends that they want to accomplish. And maybe they're not the only ones that have ever said it. But these type of things, now, I'm not going to try to argue with that. I'm not going to try to answer it. Because it's not my main point. My main point is, what did Paul say? He said they do it. And he said, they condone it and approve it. They consent to it. And I'm giving you just some illustrations of things I've heard with my own ears of people who not only do it, but also condone it. Now, now we get to the whole point of this particular message. Could be shocking. But look at, look at this. Their conscience. What they know. What they do, 
all those things. What they condone, all those things that he says are evidence of divine abandonment. And what do they know? You know, you might think he would write. They do and they condone if they only knew. Oh, what a shame that they've never heard. Not what he wrote. This is what he says. Who, although they know God's verdict, God's judgment, that the ones who do such things are worthy of death. That's what they know. They know God's verdict that the ones who do such things are worthy of death. I refer to that as their conscience. Why do you call it their conscience? Well, because they didn't learn it in psychology class. They didn't hear it blared all over the news. The people that Paul has in mind never read the Bible, but they know. They never went to Sunday school, but they know. They weren't raised in Christian homes, but they know. They didn't go to synagogue, but they know. How do they know? Because everyone has a conscience. That's how they know. And Apostle Paul is about to describe that conscience in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I'll just give it a little anticipation. He says, because when the Gentiles that don't have the law do by nature the things of the law, these not having the law are the law, in that they show the law's work written in their hearts. They do for themselves what the law does. The Ten Commandments defines right and wrong. The Ten Commandments obliges you to do right morally and forbids you to do wrong. The Ten Commandments gives approval when you do right and it condemns you when you do wrong and that's exactly what their consciences do. Their consciences define right and wrong. Their consciences require them to do right and forbid them to do wrong. Their consciences approve or excuse, which is what he says. He says, now look, in that they show the work the law does written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness with it and their thoughts one with another, either accusing or excusing them. They have a conscience. They were made with a conscience. No such thing as a human being without a conscience. And just like this whole society sees, though they won't admit it, that this world has stamped on it, made by God, by unoriginated divine power and intelligent divine design, stamped all over it, and they read the label, and they refuse to admit it. Just like this world has all stamped on it, made by God, so also the human heart has stamped on it, made by God. God and accountable to God. 
and that's stamped on every human heart. No exceptions. Everybody has a conscience. And they know. And that's how they know. And what they know is that God has reached a verdict about sexual activity apart from marriage. And God has reached a verdict about sexual activity that deviates from the created norm of male with female. And God has reached a verdict about moral degeneration that involves a worthless mentality and lifestyle with regard to wealth and human life and truth and personal relationships. And God's verdict is that those who do these things deserve eternal death. Worthy of death they are. That's why the barbarians in Acts 28.4, when they saw Paul and the others come out of the shipwreck, and all of a sudden a, a venomous creature came out of the fire, came out of the, out of the wood and fastened itself on them, those barbarians interpreted that because they had a sense of their own conscience. And it said, what they said is this. No doubt, this man was a murderer whom, though he escaped from the sea, yet justice has not suffered to live. They thought, this guy must be a murderer worthy of death, and justice is happening right here. And they watched him. And then, of course, that darkened understanding after a while, nothing happened to them. They changed their minds and said, oh, he's not a murderer. He's a god. He's a god. Yeah, okay. But they had a conscience, didn't they? How'd they? Well, where'd they get that idea? Conscience. Well, here's the insight. The inspired insight. The godless approve and condone immoral behaviors even though they know in their consciences that God the judge has reached the verdict that those who do those very things deserve eternal death. What? Yeah. That's what Paul's telling us. Dear people, you're not going to hear that in your psychology class about people. You're not going to hear that people know God's verdict, that those who practice the type of things that they condone are held as early. But they know it. They know it even though they don't admit it. They know it, even though they do the very things they know God condemns. 
and condone openly, outwardly, loudly the very things they know God condemns inwardly in their consciences they know and yet they do it and they condone it. That's an insight. Now maybe once in a while late at night somebody might be honest enough to admit something like that to you. But for the most part, they will never, ever say it. But it's true. Outwardly, they're condoning things. Inwardly, they know that God condemns these things because of their conscience. It's an inspired insight from Paul. Why are they doing this? Well, at least part, they're justifying themselves in their own eyes. They not only do them, but they also condone those who practice them. But ultimately, they do it because they love sin and they hate God. And they don't want God in their knowledge in the first place. And that's why God gave them up. And so what do they say? Live and let live. Anything goes. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all all right. The impact of this on their hearts, self-deception, self-reproach, and an enslaving fear and foreboding. And inwardly, to get away, they harden their hearts and sear their consciences It produces an inward conflict that involves denial or self-deception and self-reproach or guilt. It also produces foreboding, that is, a dread of the future, of death, and of the reckoning with God that is coming. And they don't want ever to have to face that reality. They want to escape from it and avoid that inevitable reckoning, which is why I read that passage again, because it describes that reckoning very clearly. That is Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Hebrews 2.15 speaks about it, and it says that the purpose of Christ is to deliver those who through fear of death are all their lifetime subject to bondage. And this is why the writer of Proverbs says in 28.1 that the wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous is bold as a lion. And this is why they suppress and muffle and stifle and twist and distort that voice of conscience inside of them. They dull the pain of the conviction and the guilt that it causes them. They try to escape from the guilt and the fear rather than face these things directly and deal with them honestly. Titus 1.15 describes this awful process. It says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to them that are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but their mind and their conscience is defiled. 
And he describes others in 1 Timothy as having their conscience seared with a hot iron. They want to get to the place where their conscience can't cause them pain anymore. They can't feel it anymore. They cauterize it. So it doesn't hurt. A condemning conscience that causes fear and guilt is spiritually painful. And people don't want to feel it. And they don't want to face it. And they don't want to deal honestly with it. So they deceive themselves, delude themselves. They talk conscience out of it. They say to conscience, shut up. They cauterize conscience with lies. And they have other techniques. The first and foremost answer to a guilty conscience is a false religion. Because all of the false religions of the world are the futile attempts of human beings to resolve the problem of their convicting, condemning conscience within them. The old, old writers had a name for it. They said that this conscience within human beings that gives rise to all the false religions of the world is, quote, the seed of religion. Just like they said, the awareness that everyone has that God made the world, that his eternal deity and intelligent design and unoriginated power gave rise to the world. They called that the sense of divinity or deity. And they called this within the seed of religion. But it's not the only thing. I mean, the other things that people do to drown out their conscience and suppress and stifle conscience, inebriation, stimulation, preoccupation. Inebriation, quote, feeling no pain. They numb their minds to drown out the voice and dull the pain of the convicting guilt of conscience. To escape from its voice, some people absorbing themselves in compelling stimulants like video games or texting with the phones. Now, did I say that it's a sin to text or to play a video game? No, no, no. I said that these things can be the means that people use to become so absorbed by the stimulation of texting and video games that they drown out the voice of conscience. And then there's preoccupation. To avoid the voice of conscience, some become preoccupied with their work or with politics, so focused on devoted to work or their team or political issues, they don't have time to sit down, get alone with their conscience, and pay careful attention to what it's saying to them. They don't have time because they don't want time. That's what's going on. False religion and inebriation and distracting stimulations and preoccupations. Again, I'm not saying that all addictions grow from a desire to squelch a guilty conscience. I'm just illustrating the idea of how people sear and squelch and defile their consciences to get away from the pain and the guilt that they feel 
inside. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? So, let's sum up. What did Paul say? Well, he described their conduct. The, the unconscionable response, and this is why I call a response unconscionable, because it's a rejection of conscience. This is what they do. They do the things that he describes, the things that are indicative of divine abandonment. And what do they consent to? What do they condone? They, they condone those things. But what do they know? What does their conscience tell them? Their conscience tells them God's verdict that those who do those things deserve to go to hell. You say they know that? Yes, they do. But they do them anyway? Yes. And they condone them? Yes. Even though they know that God's verdict is that those who do that stuff deserve to go to hell? Yes. That's right. That's what he said. Well, how do you apply that? First of all, dear people, believe God rather than fallen humanity. Take this inspired insight to heart. Don't forget this. Every human being, whether they admit it or not, has a conscience. So don't be taken in by what the godless say. When they vehemently condone evil, they know in their consciences that God condemns the evil behaviors that they approve and condone. You remember I told you when we were talking about the first thing that people know? I think I told you a story about a guy a long time ago that called me up on the phone. Remember I, I said to you when we were preaching in Romans 1, I think it's 20, 20, uh, 19 to 23, it says that all men know, knowing God, that they know that intelligent designer, supreme being, unoriginated power made the world. Remember I told you about that? Remember I told you what the guy said to me on the phone one time? This is similar, very similar. Guy said to me on the phone, how can you prove to me that God exists? I said to the guy, well, let me ask you a question. Why do you want me to prove to you what you already know? How can you prove to me that sexual activity outside of marriage is wrong? Again, why do you want me to prove what you already know. Same basic idea. You can't prove that to me. Why do you want me to prove to you what in your conscience you already know? What's going on? I don't have a conscience. Yeah, you do. Yes, you do. You may not want to admit it, but yes, you do. Now, I'm not saying you have to be confrontational or nasty. I'm just illustrating when people tell you this stuff, don't buy it. They're not telling you the truth. 
The truth is they do have a conscience, and the truth is they do know. And when they say things like, you can't prove this to me, well, they already know it. They already know that God has reached a verdict about people who do things like that. They already know. And they're having a big problem on the inside with it. They're squelching and searing and fighting with their own conscience because they don't want to hear it. So don't fall for it. And secondly, thank God for delivering us. This is what we once were. Once we were trying to sear our consciences and squelch our consciences. Thank God that he's delivered us because we're no better than anybody else. And therefore, walk conscientiously before God and Christ. And then testify about God. Why did Paul write these things? Did he write these things to be mean and nasty and judgmental and self-righteous? No, no, no. Remember, never take this out of context. You said you said that last week. I know I said it last week. How many times did I say it last week? Last week I said it after every point. Right? I didn't just say it once. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I said it at least four times last week, and I'm saying it again. The reason why this is written is so that people will come to Christ. This is showing people why they need Jesus. This is showing people the gospel. This is showing them mercy. This is showing them their need for Christ. Paul is telling the gospel. He's presenting good news. He's showing sinners the way to be saved and right with God. He's describing the mess they're in because he's telling them about God's answer to this awful mess. And God's answer is Jesus Christ, and that's why he wrote this. He didn't write this to be mean and nasty or to get in a debate and win debates. Oh, good grief, no. He didn't write this in order because he was starting a different political group. He didn't write this as the, as the, as the foundation of a political action committee. Folks. He wrote this so that people would be saved and delivered. He didn't write this because he thought he's better than everybody else. He said, we're no better. There before the grace of God go I. What do you have that you didn't receive? Who makes you to differ? What? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, because we already said Jews and Greeks were all under sin. We're all hell-deserving sinners. We're all who believe saved by grace. It's all of grace. It's all of God. And the very same mercy and grace that we have experienced, God offers it sincerely and indiscriminately to every person in the state of sin. That's why he wrote this. Wrote this that people would be saved. Because Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Christianity is not for good people who never did anything wrong. It's for people just like this. Such were some of you, but you were washed. Christianity is for bad people who never did anything right. It's for people who are searing and squelching their own consciences. It's for people who are living in these horrible things in 
in degeneration and deviance and degradation. All the things, it's for people living in all these sins. Christianity is for bad people who deserve to go to hell, who are responding to divine abandonment, unconscionably searing and hardening their hearts and searing their consciences. Christianity is just for people like that. That's why he wrote it. That's what this is about. Don't get it out of context here, people. Are you ever going to get tired of saying that? I hope not. I really do. I sure hope not. So where do you stand with God? You have a conscience. Don't tell me you don't. I don't believe you. I believe Paul. So what is it saying to you when you're alone at night? I entreat you. Don't suppress what it's telling you. Face your conscience honestly. Don't go on in squelching it and searing it and telling it to shut up. Don't do it. Doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus can rescue and he's willing to rescue you. Or you can hate and muffle your conscience and you can hate anyone who tells you what your conscience is telling you. And you can rip the Ten Commandments down and throw them away because basically conscience is telling you that. You don't want to hear it. I entreat you because you can't cancel your conscience. You can harden your heart and sear it, defile it, but you can't cancel it. You can't eradicate it. I entreat you to get right with God. Listen to your conscience. Hear it. Stop searing it. But rather, really, truly cleanse it. Say, how can I do that? Listen. Listen to this word. Hebrews 9. Verse 13 and 14, if the blood of bulls and goats, how much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You don't have to go on searing your conscience, twisting your conscience, squelching your conscience, trying to get rid of your conscience. Listen to it. And really Heal it. Cleanse it. How do you do that? Through the blood of Jesus. How do you do that? Go to Jesus and call upon him. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Take all your sins to what Jesus did, to his atonement on the cross. Bring them all there. Leave them there. And the blood of Jesus shed on that cross has the power to actually set your conscience free from guilt. You don't have to go on living with this awful pain of guilt and the denial and the squelching and the searing and all the things you're doing. You don't have to live like this. I entreat you, don't live like that anymore. You can't cancel. You can't eradicate your conscience. You can't do it. And it's futile. It's a waste of time to try. False religion can't do it. Inebriation can't do it. 
stimulants can't do it. Preoccupations with this and that and the other thing can't do it. Nothing can get rid of it. You're going to have it. And if you don't get it cleansed through Jesus, there's coming the reckoning that you're worrying about. It's coming. So now is the day of mercy. Now's the time. Turn away from sin in repentance. Call on the name of Jesus. He says, whoever comes to me, I'll never, ever cast out. And the scripture says, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on his name. Cast your care on him. He will save you. He will deliver you. And he will And only he can cleanse your conscience from guilt, dead works, to serve the living God. May God be pleased to bless his holy word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. The insights it has. What it tells us, the truth about humanity. What people are really like. We hear what they say outwardly. But you see what they know inwardly. You see it. And your holy word tells us the truth. Oh God, we pray. If there's anyone here that's trying to sear his conscience... So we can do sinful things and not feel any guilt or pain or twist his conscience around when it's telling him this is wrong and trying to twist it into being right. Oh God, have, have mercy. Like you had mercy on us. Have mercy. Have mercy. And let the blood of Jesus cleanse the conscience. When we pray for any who are here, we pray for our whole society a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit on those, all of those who are doing and condoning the things that inwardly they know you condemn. Oh God, have mercy. And grant that as you've had mercy on us, cleansed our conscience in that precious blood, so you would cleanse the consciences of multitudes who would trust in Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen.